Welcome to episode 149 of Destination Linux. Can you believe we've done 149 episodes and people are still listening? No. This is a podcast about using, learning, educating, and sharing our passion for Linux and everything open source. Destination Linux is meant for all experience levels. So whether you're a brand new newbie who's still dual booting or the most advanced Arch user out there, you are welcome. Noah, what? what? Why are you shaking your head? I'm just saying... Michael may or may not dual boot, and you may or may not use Arch, so it yeah. might sound like you're trying to make a statement. I don't know. I'm, I'm just I, saying. No, there was well, no to, be, to be fair, uh, he Fact. does dual boot. May or may not implies that yes, you're implying that yes because one is a yes, but the dual booting is not true. So that's you, you clarify that again. Listen, Michael, we don't uh, want to get drugged down in the details here. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm part- doing the intro. Can you guys quit interrupting? Okay, sorry. sorry anyway. <clears throat> I'm Ryan, and with me today are the Mandalorians of Linux, Noah, Zeb, and Michael. So, Noah, how has your week been, sir? It has been awesome. I was a guest speaker at the university to talk about security, and so we gave a, I gave a presentation on that and had some really interesting questions and some really interesting follow-up discussion. And it was interesting. My son came, and I, I kind of thought that he was out and going to play on his laptop. Come to find out, he was taking notes. And so we get home, and he's like, so could you explain how to do, how do I generate a GPG thing? I'm like, really? And so, yeah. So I, then I spent the next hour with him at home teaching him about encryption and symmetric encryption and asymmetric encryption and proper key management and those kind of things. We set his YubiKey up to do PAM and yeah, it was a good time. And uh, I guess- I wonder if at any point he was sitting there going, God, I wish I never asked dad this question and I could be playing my <laughs> Switch right now. Uh, You know, I doubt it because he, you know, it, it was it was constant follow-up, right? Like he would ask something and I would think I explained it enough and then he would ask another question or he'd dive a little further until he went to bed. So That's awesome. I think, it was, I, I think really the, the lesson I took away from that is as a parent, Sometimes we underestimate our kids, and oh, as yeah. it relates to technology, they're just sponges, man. They just soak mm-hmm. it up. So don't don't undervalue, don't underestimate them. Absolutely. So uh, the security conference specifically was there a topic that you covered? Was wasn't like a conference? Pilot? Yeah, it wasn't a conference. It was just a, the university asked me to come out there, and, and our local lug uh, meets at the university, and so we did it kind of a hybrid thing. We did it as part of the lug, but we did it at the university and invited other people to from that's the awesome. community to show up. Yeah, it was fun. I, I think what cool. that's going to evolve to is um, because I like I said, I had some good discussion, I had some interesting questions, and as conceited as this is going to sound, it was enlightening and refreshing to me that there were people that came that hadn't heard of the show and and just came because they were interested in general security but what this is going to lead to is i would really like to get to a point where um i'm doing presentations you know maybe monthly or maybe every six months and inviting other people around in their communities to go out and talk to people about using tor using tails using full disk encryption um basic privacy habits using DuckDuckGo as a search engine and 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 speaking to people that are not they're not linux advocates they're not open source advocates they're just day-to-day people but want to know how to keep their information private and don't know how to do so and i think that could be a really valuable thing um if we could get that working so i, I would like to do more of that if i can very cool stuff so we got a question from povok in our chat regarding the security Havoc. since you mentioned it mm-hmm. he says if i generate a gpg key now and get a YubiKey key at christmas can i put that key on the YubiKey, key or does the YubiKey key require you to generate one specific for the device no. and i'm pretty sure you can import. import that in correct yep however you would not want to store the, the the whole idea behind the YubiKey key is that it never gives up the private key so for that 
to take advantage of that security apparatus, you would want to make sure to destroy the GPG key. So the process I would recommend is create an encrypted partition or use a fully uh, encrypted disk drive, create your GPG key, import it to the uh, to the YubiKey and then destroy the GPG key file in the form of erasing the disk and 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 destroying the the the, the passphrase used to encrypt the disk. And the, the reason for that is, if you left a file copy of your GPG key, theoretically somebody could obtain a copy of that and use it uh, surreptitiously. If it's only stored on the YubiKey, it's impossible for anybody to ever duplicate that GPG key. And of course, then for backup purposes, I would have a different GPG key that I would store in like a safety deposit box or something like that. And that way you've got two keys that you're using to encrypt something or decrypt something. Yep, absolutely. So Zeb, tell us about your week. Well, I'm a little confused because first of all, I've never played a stringed instrument in my life. So why am I Mandalorian? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't, I don't Are you it. not a Star Wars fan, Zeb? Uh, yes, but I still have no idea what Mandalorian. Okay, is. so you're not one of the real fans. You're kind of the ones that's like, oh, a new film. I would is out. Dis- I would disagree that if we're going to go into a tangent, if we talk about that, because I think the the original three are the only ones that matter. The rest are all garbage. But anyway, continue. How exactly, yeah, the original you? three were He's the original absolutely three were the best. right. Yeah. The prequel. There's the, no character development. There's no real plot. It's yeah. just Jar Jar Banks jumping around. Well, the 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 <laughs> the, the, the current ones or the reboots or, or their continuation better. or whatever are like are mediocre and they're okay, but yeah, they're still they're still they're bad. But they're like, but the yes. prequels destroyed the franchise value yes. so badly. It was like, who mm-hmm. cares? Yep. Well, the, the reality is, and what I think everybody with a brain can agree on is Star Trek is superior to Star Wars. All right. So how yes. is your week? Been? <laughs> uh, well, it's been really busy at work. So I've not had a lot to do that's very productive uh, Linux wise. Although in the last couple of days, I have read an awful lot about Copa and YouTube. Calm down, Zeb. But we'll get to that later in the episode. Yeah, no, I appreciate you actually keeping us up to date on that because I kept seeing everybody talking about it, didn't quite really register everything going on. So you gave us some really good information that we'll cover later in the episode. I yeah. appreciate that. Um, Michael, what's new in your, what have you not unboxed lately? Wait, are you implying that I get, Okay, it's still technically, it's, as is tradition, it's still there, but uh, that's the monitor arm, by the way. Uh, that we talked about last week, but I actually been doing some, you know, improving some various different things on the websites. I've I've actually modified the destinationlinux.org websites for improvements and various different things like that in the back end. But uh, what's really interesting is that a couple days ago, uh, I did a favor for my brother, which involved me driving many hours to get something for him because I'm a great brother. And it sounds uh, illegal already. No, it's not illegal. Boring, okay. <laughs> yes, but not illegal. But the the main thing is, is that when I'll, well, I did an impromptu like live lug meeting on the way there with uh, people on the DL group or Telegram and the DL Discord and other places, uh, and I just sent a message like, "Hey, if anybody wants to chat, I'll, I'm stuck driving for a couple hours, so hey, let's have a chat." And uh, it was like a couple dozen people or so throughout the hours of of time. It was like wasn't all at once, but throughout that we had like it was a fun conversation because it was like, what do I do after I've already listened to all the podcast and I still have hours to go? So I did an impromptu thing for with everybody in the DL group, and it was awesome. No, that is such a great idea. Honestly, I I was jealous you thought of that, and I hadn't for all the many trips that I've taken. I mean, just <laughs> in a room. Because uh, conversation, if you have somebody in the car with you, you'll notice, like, I don't know anybody's had long commutes. It, the commutes go by so much faster. It feels like it just 
flies by. If you're sitting in a car by yourself, it goes on and on forever. So it's yeah. kind of a good idea to make the trip not seem so long and also to talk to people about Linux, which, I mean, that's kind of what we do. Yeah, it was awesome. So Ryan, how was your week been? So I was traveling all week. Um, I was in Missouri this week, and it presented an interesting opportunity to take the Pinebrook Pro on a trip, uh, nice. make sure it could survive TSA and all of their fun, and also put it to the test for getting the work done that I need to for this show in preparation for the show and other things. Not surprisingly, the Pinebook turned out to work perfectly fine. Everything I needed to get done, I was able to get done. Uh, had a lot of curious people around as well, wanting to see the the laptop and, and figure out what it was and what I was using and that type of thing. So had a lot of good conversation. But you know how they're, we're going to talk about a product later in the show where, you know, they talk about all the things that it can do and then it actually doesn't do those things and it's a big disappointment. And the Pinebook Pro, I found out, has a feature that they didn't talk about, but it's a good thing, an extra feature nobody's mentioned. And I just found out about this today. So the laptop's sitting on my couch and my son decides to catapult off the couch arm and onto the other couch, stepping on the Pinebook along the way, of course, to launch his weight. And the Pinebook Pro survived. And they don't list that feature anywhere <laughs> on their website. But Hold on, hold on. Yeah. Are you checking the specs? Can can confirm not in the FAQs. Yeah, it's not in the FAQs anywhere that it is actually uh, kid-proof. So um, it's actually, I, I was impressed. I thought, oh my gosh, when I saw him launch off it, that laptop is a goner. Uh, <laughs> the first thought was, thank goodness, it's only $199, but it's still $199. So, um, but no, it survived. There is no damage, no dent, no nothing. So it's a pretty sturdy little laptop, and it took some abuse uh, being thrown into laptop bags and you know, pulled out randomly on planes and getting bumped and all of that stuff. So it was pretty awesome. Uh, also, while I was in Missouri, we got a chance to do some charity work, uh, sending building boxes of goodies to send the soldiers overseas, which Dude. was a highlight of the trip. Nice. And I enjoyed that. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well done that, man. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. And by the way, using the Pinebook Pro, I was able to uh, do work on my DigitalOcean droplets no matter where I was, which is one of the advantages of having uh, the Pinebook Pro, and of course, DigitalOcean there so that you can get all of this stuff, access to it from anywhere you are at. You can get all of this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0 0.7 cents per hour, and that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials. I have to believe it's got to be well over 2,000 at this point. Uh, hmm. But at least 2,000 of them out there and with the latest. Uh, so you can stay up to date with the latest open source software languages and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for one month free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash DL. Now, this is the important part because they help make this show a reality. They help support this show and have for a long time. So make sure you let them know that we sent you by going to do.co slash DL. And you can get started with a $50 credit as a bonus there. And as always, we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. 
Hey everyone, before we get to the rest of the show, I wanted to take a brief moment to let you know about something we are doing for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. So this is not actually in the particular episode because we didn't think about it until, well, after we recorded the show. So unfortunately, it's just a ninja edit here so that it's got, in the video version, I'm just going to put some like random graphics about Black Friday and whatever. And uh, yeah, so the Destination Linux Network is going to have a Black Friday sale and a Cyber Monday sale for the destinationlinux.network slash store so that you can go there and get a coupon code. We haven't launched the coupon code yet on the store, so be sure to go there on Friday to get it and find out what that code is. So if you want to get some DLN merch and save some money while you do it, then go to destinationlinux.network slash store on Friday. The beginning of Friday, we'll, we'll launch it. And it'll be there all the weekend until the end of Cyber Monday. So be sure to go to destinationlinux.network slash store. Now let's get back to the show. So on to our um, community feedback. And I think from the uh, episode where we was all concerned about security, a listener wishes to remain anonymous. So I'd like to remain anonymous, please, if that's possible. Well, we'll have to read your email first to see if we've got any gripes against you. So <laughs> he goes on to say, I'm really excited to send this email since I'm a big fan of the show since episode 91. So I listen to every show every single week whilst driving to class. I wanted to say a couple of things about, com- uh, about the coming of Edge to Linux. The first being that, as Torvald said back in 1998, if Microsoft ever releases software on Linux, we've won. So yeah, yeah we've won. Nice. The second comment is that since most of the software infrastructure that is used by the government on my country is, or in my country is heavily reliant on Microsoft products, since the XP days, it is impossible to use certain websites from Firefox or any other browser. God forbid if you use any other browser. See, this person Um, does listen to us. Yeah, absolutely. So they have to use Edge or Internet Explorer. And that's a big problem if you want to ask for any certificates or do any other important operation at home. I know of many people that could benefit from this, and I'd leave behind their Windows VMs once and and for all. And I will personally install it on my machine or probably a VM. I just don't trust them. On another note, I learn a lot of stuff from this show, especially when you bring Bo and he talks about his networks and attacks. So keep up the good work. Greetings from Spain. By the way, I use POP. See, and he still made it into the notes. So your theory that I only include Arch users in the uh, show notes is completely wrong. Completely wrong. <laughs> but I, I do have a love for Pop as well. No, this is a great email. Thank you, first of all, for being a long-term fan. We appreciate that a lot. And these emails mean a lot to us. Very much. Because you surprise some of the other ones we get. Uh, on, the, <laughs> on, the, uh, on the thought about, you know, Edge and... Basically, well, I guess first on his thought about Torvald saying, if Microsoft ever releases software on Linux, we've won. I think that's an interesting quote, and I wasn't aware that he had ever said that. Mm -hmm. But I think you can certainly say in many respects, Linux has won. Um, We continue to grow and dominate in so many areas. And more and more, when I walk out with my endless supply of Linux shirts, I get people saying things to me in public like, nice shirt, or I love Linux, or stopping me to talk about Linux. And I can tell you, a couple of years ago, that never happened. People just looked at it, read it, and like, uh, you know, you look, see that confused look on their face. So 
Linux is getting out there more than ever before. And I think certainly, um, you know, some of what Microsoft is doing has helped, but a lot of it just happens to be uh, people being annoyed with the latest Windows 10 and having so many problems on their desktop. And that just sends customers our way. And the only other alternative will cost you $2,300 for a underpowered laptop, which is Apple. So, you know, it's it's a pretty good option uh, out there for people. And I think so many, uh, you know, content creators out there as well, realizing there's such an audience for Linux is helping in addition to that. Um, a quick question, because um, I'm sure I used to have it when I used to use Google Chrome. Isn't there a little add-on that you can spoof websites into thinking you're using Internet Explorer? And yeah, wouldn't so that you help do, him in his situation with his government websites? You can do user agent switching, but the, they also That's could, the one. They could do it in a local like network structure where it doesn't look use the user agent and uses like it has a thing on the computer testing to see if it's an actual like whatever particular browser. So, and if they're doing it just on the website side, you could stop. You could block it that way. But if it's doing mm-hmm. like at work and you have like their machines, they could put something in extra. But I think it actually is an interesting quote, and I, I was aware of it, and and I also I don't know if I feel about it because it's like what it, they're releasing software for Linux, and Edge is not an example because Edge is not their software; it's Chromium. Uh, <laughs> but I guess in a way that they did release a SQL Server and some other stuff, so they did kind of release stuff for for Linux. Uh, I think, but everything that they've released for for Linux is for themselves. So I'm still like, eh, they really haven't done anything that's really that proves that 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 they've kind of changed and i but i think that linux has was one prior to that anyway because we dominate everything other than the desktop and like everything so you know you know it's it's not an issue uh, in the chat someone said uh, vs code was released and it's like yeah but that's also based on atom which is not theirs either so whatever <laughs> you know vs codes turned out to be a big win though and i'm very happy we do have it on Linux. That would be the that out of everything Microsoft's released, that's the one that is to me the most. I personally don't use it, but I have looked at it, and I, I think it's the most useful to developers and everyone else being able to have. And, and I believe mm-hmm. uh, Nate called into your show Noah to talk about this uh, specifically about the fact that even at his workplace, you know, he was able to use Linux because VS Code was on there. And that's kind of a required software package for everybody. So if people want to use Windows, great. They've got VS Code. But if you want to be on Linux, you've got VS Code there. And it's exactly the same. And that was a big deal for them. So I think VS Code's probably the best thing Microsoft has released for Linux so far. Even though, like you said, it's based on somebody else's work. It's something that in the corporate world you know, in some jobs is required. Yeah, it's definitely good that we have that as an option now because if there's people who require that type of like a Microsoft suite that we could use those things on Linux and the fact that they're using a platform from someone else to build those that software makes it easier for them to build it but also makes it easier easier for them to support Linux because of it. So I guess in a way that it's, it's, you know, not that it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a, it's just something like to me. It's like if you when they when they say something that they write something for Linux or release software for Linux, I think that requires them to actually have created the software themselves rather than taking something else and then putting something on top of it. I, and I, I guess you could argue that since they bought GitHub, which created Atom and Electron, that they now own those things. But whatever. Yeah. Scott writes in to say, "I love the show and I listen as often as I can. I've been a quasi power 
Windows and Linux user for a long time. I'm nearly expert level in Windows and Linux dual boot capable, but for the life of me, I can't quite figure out how some Linux distributions play nice in the dual boot environment, yet others, no matter how carefully I set everything up, CentOS and sometimes even Fedora, blow away the master boot record. Windows is still there. If I just go back and install a well-behaved Linux distribution like KDE Neon, Ubuntu, or a few others, any suggestions? Otherwise, keep up the great work. What do you guys think? So, Noah, well, I mean, I'm curious. Well, I'm curious to you or Michael or even Zeb have some thoughts here. This has been a long time pain point for me, uh, especially when I was moving distros all of the time, uh, which is why last week, if you remember, I specifically brought up MX Linux uh, install setup in which they have a very specific section separated from all other sections of the install to say, okay, what do you want to do with Grub? Do you want to install Grub? Do you not want to install Grub? And if you do want to install it, where exactly do you want to put it? Now, every distro, technically, you can go in there and do advanced custom settings and set all of that stuff yourself up. But I have found, just like this user says, that certain distros, no matter what you put there, it's going to blow away Grub and blow away your other Grub or not find things. And you've got to either manually fix it. And it's just a major, major pain point to the effect that one of the reasons why I got an IC dock was so that I could pop out every single drive in my computer, except for the one I'm installing the distro on, put that, install the distro, and then put every drive back in and basically, you know, do a refind on the um, Grub and have everything set up there. It's interesting he mentioned specific distros here. Uh, the one that to me is the absolute worst for this is Pop! OS, which uses System mm -hmm. Deboot, I believe. It will wipe out anything else standing in its way um, and has been known for that for a long time um, as a complaint against Pop! OS um, using the System D boot uh, setup that they have. But I was surprised to see Fedora and CentOS here because I, I haven't messed with CentOS very much, but Fedora I've not had that issue with very much. But there's probably something specific maybe you all know about of why some distros just seem to not care. I want to point what? out, I just want to start by saying I would find it, I find it very strange that CentOS is acting this way as CentOS is, I mean, there are a few things that Red Hat concentrates on, but making sure the system boots would definitely be high in the list, you know? Yeah. Well, it'll boot, it'll just wipe everything else out. Yeah. Um, and I think in that particular regard, Fedora is very picky about the EFI partition that it wants to write to. Um, and if there's already something in there, it says, oh, but I can't install to that. I'm sorry, you're going to have to format it. But if you format it, you're going to have to wipe mm. it out. So specifically in this particular gentleman's uh, use case where he's got Windows there already, my suggestion would be to go into Windows and shrink the drive to as much room as you want to give to Linux. Then when you go into the installer of Linux, fire up Gparted first of all and give yourself a second EFI boot partition, yeah? Once you're in Gparted, turn the, the EFI boot flags off the windows. It doesn't need those flags. It knows it's there. It will always use them. So now you have your Linux partition, your home partition, and a completely fresh EFI partition to point your installer to. Mm -hmm. When you then reboot, it will find Windows. It will boot up the OS you're using and the Windows OS bootloader will be safe. Now, my machine is really stupid. I've got like six SSDs and I've got maybe eight EFI partitions on there. 
but I know what each one does and what each one contains. So I'm safe from wiping out my, my, my Windows partition, but there are a lot of distros out there still that want to format your EFI partition, and that's when it all gets really, really dangerous. That's a good tip. So I've heard a lot of people talk about getting rid of Grub and that Refind is such a better option out there. I've not spent the time to play with it. Has anybody checked out any of these other alternatives? I've played with Refind. Yeah, it's a very nice graphical interface, but it will suffer the same problem as Grub. If you've got a very, very messy set of EFI partitions and Grub installs, I often find that it duplicates a lot of the entries. Mm. And you go, oh, well, hang on a minute. Which of these two Ubuntu's that I've got is my real one and which was the one that got mucked up by someone else? So it's not tidy in that regard. And because a lot of people haven't played it, played with it, I don't find it a very intuitive interface to try and fix. Mm. To look at, it's very, very pretty. There is an exceptionally good website if you can speak wiki. Um, but we all know <laughs> I don't speak wiki. Um, but yes, you can you can get it installed and it is a reasonable alternative. I just don't understand why people get upset when you say, well, why not have a system D and Grub? It works and it works really, really well. And if you want to press F8 or whatever the keyboard shortcut is on your machine and go into your system's EFI boot menu and pick your distribution or wait for your favorite flavor of Grub to turn up and in my case it's normally manjaro because manjaro doesn't play well with other if you try and run manjaro from ubuntu you'll get a kernel panic because it's written in a completely different way so why can't i then let the machine boot up to manjaro's grub and then pick the distribution i want you've got the best of both worlds then yeah that's a good point yeah i i did the the lazy way i actually haven't dual booted in so long that i no idea how to do it anymore well i mean i remember the old ways but it's been i haven't Got done got done the uh, Windows build, dual booting in so long because the Flexi Doc uh, that Ryan mentioned that we I found a I found it a long time ago and I've been using it for like a couple of years now and it is the seamless approach if you have a desktop computer if it's just on a laptop you really can't do that but if you have a desktop computer check out the Flexi Doc I have a video on my channel about it if you want to learn more about it it is such a smooth experience to dual booting or multi booting or whatever. And the so is he just trying to kill the myth that he doesn't dual boot? I yeah, I think know. so. Did you see how many times he spent talking about not dual booting? So I, mean, I, I just want to point out that I'm, I appreciate, Zed, that you said myth, because you're correct. It is a myth. Yeah, but it can't be a myth because you've just caused Noah's lights to go out. Okay, yeah. you did. I, well, I, was, I, I thought I was crazy the for a second. spirit like... of Windows is after you. It just <laughs> the wrong presenter. Sorry. <laughs> I love it. So Jeff writes in to say, hi, DLN guys. I'm a French Canadian system developer and a network specialist from a little city in the middle of Quebec. I'm using Linux since the beginning of the two of 2000 and I removed Microsoft out of my life for 10 years now. How awesome is that? How freeing <laughs> that must be. I'm working mainly on Raspbian and Debian. I use Pop! OS for gaming and Manjaro on my new Pinebook Pro. First time using Arch-like distribution. Be careful, it's an addiction. You're going to be saying, by the way, I use Arch in no time straight. By the way, uh, the Manjaro uh, version for the Pinebook Pro has received some patches to fix some of the issues that it was having. And it is very much an alpha, and they say that everywhere. So these issues aren't like, uh, you know, not to be expected, but they're fixing them very quickly. And it's turning out to be 
an absolute fantastic distribution for Pinebook Pro if you want to try something different on it. He goes on to say, I was working in farm automation with a Linux system, but after six years of development, the company I was working for chose to abandon my project to go with the Microsoft solution because getting a second Linux dev in our region was nearly impossible. So since last April, I'm searching for a new job as a Linux system dev, but can't find anything near my home. From now, I've learned the system dev part of my career and focus more on the networking part. So the question I have is, is there someone in the Linux community that needs a system developer specialized in C, multi-threading kernel drivers with a degree in electronics? I can literally build a router from scratch, hardware and software. I don't want this part of my life to be lost because nobody needs it where I live. You um, that know a lot of Linux communities do know a place where I can put my knowledge to be more efficient for the Linux world. Continue to uh, your great work and have a nice day, Jeff. So, Michael, this actually made me start thinking about one of the reasons why I wanted to start my lug group here in Georgia was because there were a lot of individuals talking to me personally about trying to find work. And they were highly intelligent. A lot of people in the Linux community are highly, highly intelligent individuals. And we have this destination Linux network now, and we have this awesome forum. Is there some place on the forum we can create? And I literally have been gone all week, so I'm asking you on the show live uh, for people <laughs> who post jobs and things for if they need jobs or if they actually have jobs out there. Because I thought, what a great way. We have nearly, by the way, if you haven't joined the Telegram group, we have over 1,100 people in there now. Networking is a big part of getting a job. And that would be my first advice to tell you. You need to become a part of the communities out there. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes electronic communities like our Telegram groups, you know, other groups out there that deal in Linux. Because if you start making friends, they'll have that random conversation. By the way, we're looking mm-hmm. for so-and-so and, and, and you'll, you'll be able to get a job that way. But also locally, joining local lug groups, joining local organizations where you can get involved and get to know people. because most of the good jobs, at least in my experience, 20 years being in corporate America, come by the way of networking. You know somebody who knows somebody and that's how you get in. So that's my advice to your question, but I'm wondering if we could maybe uh, add a section in our forums for people looking for jobs and people who are posting jobs that they may have for people. Yeah, definitely. We can look into that. I'm, I mean, it's one of the things that I wanted to do for a while. So I think we should go ahead and just go ahead and like build something out and see what happens. Uh, but I think that's a great, a great point. Networking is one of the best things to do. Like, especially if you, uh, you can find like computer clubs because you might not find a, like a Linux group or Linux company that's specifically for it, but they might not know that Linux is a solution in some companies. So they could uh, search for, you know, a for computer job that's re- relevant to that. And then have like, a, in, in the interview, you could talk to them about that. And they like, especially if it's a small company, they'd be more flexible in that sense. Uh, but there, there's many ways to do it, but networking in your local area, as well as online is the best way to check it out. I think that we could definitely put a section on the forum and hopefully that can help out as many people as possible. There you go. Here's here's my question to help them out uh, a little sooner than as soon as possible. Uh, does he's interested in subcontracting? Because uh, I may or may not know an IT company that's looking for somebody like that for a couple jobs. Well, there you go. Send us, send us, Call me. Yeah, there you go. Send us an email. We'll follow up on that as well. Beautiful. So we love hearing from our worldwide community and today's couple of emails have proved that from Quebec Uh, all the way through Spain. Um, We have many ways for your voice to be heard. Uh, You can send us a short email or video that may get incorporated into the show. So please send your links or email or your video links or your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. So first in the show this week, we're going to talk about Coreboot. We just talked about uh, Grub 
and other boot systems, but this is kind of a more of a BIOS replacement. And Core Boot, if you're not aware, Core Boot is a project looking to replace the proprietary BIOS firmware for a more secure open source alternative. And the project we, it was originally called the Linux BIOS, but that they changed the name for like that because Core Boot sounds pretty sounds a little bit better. And uh, also doesn't specify that it's just for Linux because that means that it makes right. it possible for other different other uh, operating systems to use it. So, uh, for instance, the Linux Core Boot uh, has like a, a G unzip the Linux kernel straight out of the NVRAM. This means there's a less bloat and there's a lot more speed for the booting system. And in addition, it means there's more free computer parts, so like it won't be restricted by manufacturers adding DRM blobs to keep you out that kind of thing. So there's a lot of app, a lot of systems that are using this. There's a lot of different support that's coming in the next version. So the Core Boot 4.11 has support for uh, Chromebooks, AMD Picasso APU, the AMD Padmelon is okay. Uh, reference board, the Lenovo ThinkPad uh, T4 T410 T440P, and many many more. Uh, and there's also we ha there's actually support for System76 laptops that are using Core Boot now as well. Right. So that's great. Um, some argue that they that even Core Boot, there are still things that like the Intel, Intel ME and AMD PSP, which is still available in like a lower level backdoor thing. But that's more on a hardware level rather than a firmware level. So uh, I'm not sure if that's even possible for them to do anything except for maybe disable the because I know some app, some companies, some manufacturers are able to disable the IME, uh, right. but. Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure if there's how much you could do anything beyond that. Uh, but this is pretty interesting that they've made, they add some new support for different uh, hardware. And also, it, uh, I like the fact that AMD is now pushing uh, different weird terms like Padmelon. That's fun. <laughs> like what? That's fun. <laughs> what is that? So, anyway. I, I, was, I was fascinated by how many developers are now involved in Core Boot. So you had, in this release, 1,630 commits by over 130 developers on this. Wow. So if you were thinking that, you know, Core Boot may be one of those things that, you know, starts and then fizzles away like a Google product, you're wrong. Core Boot, <laughs> like, uh, like it is here to stay. Um you know, and, and the people who are naysayers, because I've seen this when System76 made the announcement. I've seen this anytime Core Boot gets mentioned that, oh, yeah, but there's still this vulnerability that could happen here or there, whatever. It's, it's, you got to stop moving the cone before we even have the cone in place. Mm -hmm. And this is a step in the right direction. Does it fix everything tomorrow? No. But unless there's a Power 9, lap, uh, Power 9 based laptop out there, around the same price as every other laptop, that's not a viable solution. Um, and at the moment, now doesn't mean we won't get there, but let's get this cone placed. Let's get this open source BIOS in place and be celebrating the companies that are utilizing it. Yeah. Then we can move the cone and say, all right, next step. Why right. don't we see if we can do this? Right. And the problem is when you do that, you discourage anybody from ever wanting to work on it. Yes. And it's a major problem because you have a lot of really smart security conscious people in the Linux world. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with the fact of thinking about, all right, what's the next step? We need to take it. But the comments that I read are so, so negative. And by the way, if you're looking for a job, stop, uh, because that stuff reflects negatively on you. But they're so negative and they're so angry about things that, and, and they're not wrong in their concept of, hey, you know, it could be more secure. 
It's just the way they go about it is discouraging to people. And we need to take baby steps here because we don't have a, a processor that is mass produced and at the right pricing right now to replace everything that's AMD and Intel uh, and remove, um, uh, although I don't know if anybody has real issues with AMD's PSP, but certainly Intel me and, uh, and, and things like that out there. So it will come, but I am super mm -hmm. excited about Core Boot. And I think it's really cool that there's a lot of laptops out there right now that you can go put this in yourself. You can, mm -hmm. you can uh, basically get this flashed onto your machine and you can start using Core Boot. And a lot of people seem to be, I mean, 130 developers is nothing to sneeze at. There's a lot of big distros out there that would love probably to have 130 developers working on there. Yeah, definitely. Project. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really good project, and I'm glad that and it's been around for a while. But I'm, I'm really glad that it's continued to get to the point where uh, manufacturers are now shipping with it. In some cases, like System76, are shipping with Core, Core Boot now. So, and some of and some of their devices. So that, that's awesome. So, like, with a, even though there's a like you like, there's a a negative uh, community aspect around it. Like, I think that that's it's even more impressive that they've able to just completely ignore that stuff and just push forward to make sure everything gets done because that is exactly. it's something that needs to happen. And you know, there's a lot of times where some projects will just give up because they they have a lot of ne negative feedback. And I'm glad that this is not one of those projects. Yep. So on to some software news. Um, and Firefox is sweetening the pot once again. So Firefox has announced some updates to its web security bounty program. Now, the first big chance is the increase to bounty payouts. Mozilla is now doubling the payment for all critical and core bugs. Then they are tripling payouts for remote code execution bugs to 15,000 for critical sites. That's, that's $15,000. Awesome. I mean, that's just... I that could know, almost buy you a new MacBook. Yeah, almost. Or Michael, a new <laughs> Windows machine. Wow. <laughs> Mozilla states in their blog they're one of the first companies to establish a bug bounty program, and this is all a part of celebrating 15 years since Firefox One was released, along with assuring their program remains relevant and active. So now that that pot of gold has grown, they've also grown the critical sites eligible for the payout which includes in services like Autograph, a cryptographic signature service that signs Mozilla products, Lando, Mozilla's new automatic code landing service, which allows us to easily commit fabricator revisions to their destination repository, um, and a number of other sites that we'll have listed in the show notes. Finally, new core sites have been added as well, and the new payouts have already been updated to the reported web bugs. So if you're looking to make some cash for the holidays, there are some opportunities to turn your talent into a paycheck. Um, so not to be outdone, Google has also announced a huge bounty increase from 200,000K max prize to $1 million. This is a 50% bonus for exploits found on specific developer preview versions of Android. So becoming a bug bounty hunter might turn out to be a very lucrative career choice with all this money and dough on the line. So question for you guys, what level of technical ability is it that a person has to have to go for these types of bug hunting jobs? 
I mean, I, I think that the, this, the pots that are here are, are quite extensive. You know, we're talking about people needing jobs in the Linux world and being highly intelligent individuals. And, you know, I think you would have to have a good amount of talent to not only understand some of these bugs, but to fix them. You may get lucky and there may be some easy ones out there that your average, um, not your average Joe, but somebody who's just semi-technical uh, might be able to find but this is a lot of money, and I would imagine that somebody could, if they were uh, well-versed in either Google Android or Firefox or browser exploits, uh, could make some good money doing this as a, as a job, mm -hmm. potentially, or at least a really good side gig here. Yeah, Because this is some serious money. Yeah, this is a developer thing. And also, to be, clar to be clarified, that the... Uh, the fifteen thousand for the critical bugs is uh, for fifteen thousand per bug. So if you just found two bugs, you're pretty much good to go in some some areas and stuff. Uh, but I, I think that this is this is really good. It is a big, this is a good possibility for people to get some like side cash if you're a good if you're a developer or if you if you know anything about security. And in the browser's case, uh, there's different types of languages you can look into different issues. And I think, but it's not necessarily just dev stuff. I mean, you're more likely going to be able to get uh, you know bug bounty stuff if you're a developer. Uh, you're gonna be able to look at the code more and that kind of thing. However, I would like to point out there was a bug bounty that was. Uh, found by uh, i think an eight-year-old from apple who had they found a big giant bug in facetime so there's all kinds of potential yeah so it, interesting too i would think android would be the easiest one and i'm not just doing that because i don't like google i mean it just just today for instance there was an article that released of over a thousand apps that had vulnerabilities that were disclosed all the way back in 2014 that are still sitting on the app store with those vulnerabilities on it and they've been downloaded a total of 5 billion times since those exploits have come out. Wow. So there yeah, is a lot. Yeah, but those are lot. bug bounties for, they're, they're only, this is only bug bounties for Android itself. So basically my, just my take. My point it. is though that there's probably a lot of stuff that are old exploits. Oh yeah. That Google hasn't patched that are sitting out there that you might be able to make some quick money on. Right. I was just going to say that if you had, if you wanted to do it, you could just take the, the, uh, the link to the Play Store and send it to Google and say, bug found <laughs> i'm just gonna send him the article <laughs> and get my million yeah um yeah no this is really interesting uh way though for somebody i think it, it could turn into a very lucrative career if you went out there and just did these bug hunts out there i would think there's probably even the potential to create an organization around there with a bunch of smart people sitting in a room just knocking out bugs and making paychecks i mean this is some serious dough on the line and, and this seems to be a new way that companies are utilizing to kind of get these bugs found and also entice hackers and things to fix the bugs versus just exploiting them. And that's kind of an interesting cause, basically giving people um, who look for these type of exploits a way to make money other than illegally on it. I think that's the purpose of bug bounties, really. Which is pretty cool. If you've used Linux for any amount of time, then you've probably gone to install a printer. You know that HP by far has the best support for Linux out there. And HP LIP is a, the HP open source driver that they actually release and maintain on their site. And so if you're planning on getting a new printer or scanner, um, you might want to consider HP. So a new version of HP LIP is out, the HP LIP or HP 
Linux imaging and printer drivers have a new software release 3.19.11 that adds support to Ubuntu 19.10, Fedora 31, and the latest Manjaro. In addition, you get the latest job account support added for the whole new plethora of HP LaserJet printers included. Finally, you'll get support for HP UI scan that allows devices to only scan the backside of a page. HP printers are well known throughout the community for having great driver support. Seeing more software along with additional uh, printer driver support makes the decision on what printer to buy even easier. In fact, we have we deploy kiosks to hotels and small offices. And every time we do that, one of the things they always ask is we want a printer. And we have settled on the HP M402, I think it's 402, M402N. Um, and uh, you just, you literally with HP printers, I'd say 85% of them, you just take them out of the box and plug them in and they'll work out of the box. And the other remaining 15%, you go to op HP's open source driver page, which actually exists. And by the way, if you want to link to it, go to ultaspeed.com, click on client resources because we have it linked, of course, and download the HP LIP tool and then all of the printers will work. And it's the kind of tool that you would expect on Mac OS or Windows, right? You install the HP LIP tool, you run it, it presents you with a little UI and it says, Hi, welcome to your printer. How do how is the printer connected? Is it over USB? Is it over Wi-Fi? Or is it a direct network connection? Okay, I want to connect directly to Wi-Fi. All right, let me search. Here are the available Wi-Fi networks. Click, connect to the printer. You connect to it. it does, and it walks you through the entire process. It helps you set the name. Helps you decide if you want to share the printer. It's a fantastic tool to the point that when we were designing our kiosk system, the only requirements I gave... Uh, to our developer when we were going through that process when we got to printers was I said it has to be HP. It has to be HP and it has to be networked. I also will point out that way back in the early 2000s, HP was the first company to come up with, they had their HP Jet Direct, which was actually, I mean, the Jet Direct came back out in the 80s, but uh, in, the not, in the late 90s and early 2000s, as Linux was starting to take off, they had strong ties into cups with the HP uh, Jet Direct, and so you can set up a network printer, and this is this one hundred percent has worked out of the box without any drivers. If it's a network printer, uh, you 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 install the network printer, you give it an IP address, and you go into Linux. One of the options is connect to an HP Jet Direct printer. Put that in, type in the model number, and Bob's your uncle. You have a printer on the network. So I'm really excited that HP LIP has a new release. This is definitely something I will be downloading, not just soon, but today. And I'll definitely be trying it at a number of our different clients and report back because I'm, I'm, I'm confident this is going to be a really great thing for Linux. Ryan, what are your thoughts? So what's really interesting is when I started on Linux, I remember the pure hatred and frustration with getting printers to work in any anything, hardware, but, any hardware, but Ubuntu. Yeah. Um, Ubuntu seemed to have this magical thing back then that now a lot of other distros are starting to show, but Ubuntu was the first I ever seen it in where they could find your printer and you could just set it up by clicking add printer and be done. Every other distro, it was magical incantations upon terminals, upon cups, upon all of these things you were trying to do to please, please get the printer to work. And printers are a frustrating thing to begin with. Even in any operating system, they can be frustrating and annoying. I mean, there's a whole reason why there's that, you know, scene in the movie where the guy's beating a printer with the bat and that's his way of relieving stress. Everything changed for me. I have not had a complaint with a printer ever since I went to HP. There's an individual, um, I don't, they've never, I've never asked them if I could name them, so I'm not going to name them, but they actually are in our Telegram group that works for HP. They were in playing Ballistic Overkill for me, uh, with me one day and they're like, 
hearing my frustrations, I had a brother printer, which by the way, a lot of people recommend in Linux to get brother. I have not had great experiences. I tried three. I, I second my, that. Yeah, I've I second my, that. And if you do get them to work, they stop working later. Yeah, I was on my third one and I was complaining about it while playing the game and I still can't get the stupid printer to work right in Linux. It'll find it print and then the next time you reboot, it'll never find it again or whatever was going on. He said, hey, I work for HP. They do a lot with open source, get an HP printer. I got one. I have the M251 NW LaserJet and it has just absolutely worked in every single distro every time. No problems at all. It is the greatest feeling to be able to just hit print and know mm-hmm. that it will print. And, and in most HP cases, you just, you just, most cases, HP just hook up the printer and it just works because it's built into the kernel stuff. And like, yep. it's so nice. Like when, when they first announced this, it was like, when I first got into Linux, there was like, the printers was abysmal. It was, it was like trying to get a printer to work was, was torture. Uh, but then HP announced that they were going to do that. This, uh, they created this like campaign to make support for Linux. And for the past like 15 maybe 17 years or so you could get an hp printer and just it'll just work so now at this point well every time i get a new printer it's always an hp because i know that it's going to work without question and i don't have to worry about making sure i get the drivers and stuff except for like the you know that saying that you're saying that there's there's occasionally like the new ones you still need to get their their drivers from the website but like uh i hooked up a 10 year old printer is like i wonder if this works and it did so like it's 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 fantastic yeah. And it's because they invested in having their software in the kernel as well as they have the separate software package to give you that nice GUI and things that you come to expect that tell you your ink's low or whatever, which in Windows and things is annoying, but the way they have it implemented in Linux, it's not at all. It only tells you those messages while you're printing, not just randomly popping up every five seconds so your printer <laughs> ink is low and stupid things like that that other printer companies do. Um, so I, it's just, it's so well done. I. HP killed it. If you need a printer or scanner, believe me, trust me, save yourself the frustration, spend a little bit more money and get an HP. You know, honestly, I don't even, I would argue that HP's lower end is on price with Brothers. Uh, yeah, I would say low, they're low end. The as far as price. Yeah. Yeah, as far as price goes, okay. So you can buy a, you can buy the M eleven eighteen, which is a networked HP printer for ninety one dollars. I don't think Brother has a cheaper print. If you're looking for a laser jet, which you should be looking for a laser jet if you do the if you do the calculation on ink costs, uh, it's cheaper to have a laser jet, and you can do a multifunction machine for 168 bucks. So I I don't. There's no excuse not to buy an HP. If you don't buy HP, you just don't love Linux. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> okay. Now that's an advertisement. Okay, so now it's story time on Destination Linux. Let oh, me good. set the scene for you. Um, a number of years ago, and I haven't got a clue when, along came this wonderful thing called YouTube. And mm. people flocked to it in the millions. Creators started creating websites and programs and everything that people wanted to watch. And hey, along came advertising. And they made a lot of money doing it. And there are probably people out there now who are millionaires because of Google. Then the Google accountants went, whoa, hang on a minute, boys, we're hemorrhaging money here. Let's create the ad apocalypse. And overnight, people's money revenue was reduced. Um, They changed their algorithms and all sorts of things happened. Now, I truly believe Google have found another method of not paying 
creators on YouTube and they are blaming the FTC. So along comes COPA, the Children Online Privacy Protection Act. And this was brought about by some child protection um, groups that wanted to protect their children and didn't like all of this metadata being collected. So COPA come along and said, okay, if a YouTube creator says that this YouTube video is aimed at children, you can no longer collect any metadata on them. You can't use it. It's just not done unless you go out and get the individual permission of the parents. Now, that's an impossible task. And there's been oh, hundreds of videos from people out there coming up with their own theory as to why this is all happening. OK, now, this is just my theory that Google wants to stop paying people more money because what they've done is they've taken what the FTC says and given you two options. Your video is either for children or it's not for children. If it's for children, your revenue will be dropped by 90% because you can't have all these ads. You can't have all this personal information coming through to you. If, however, you mark it as not for children, and some weird algorithm or somebody sitting in the FTC offices says, whoa, that's clearly aimed at children. You're nicked. Pay me $43,350. That is Google's version of what the FTC was saying. But I found a couple of videos by a gentleman who's an actual lawyer who, first of all, was complaining about all this. And then he got a phone call, supposedly from somebody very high up in Google. And they found a clause that Google have completely ignored in this COPA regulation that says there is a middle ground. There might be a situation where somebody is making a video for adults, but it pertains some part of it to children. Now, that doesn't have to be affected by Google's draconian method of it either is or it isn't for children. Now. There's, as I say, there are so many videos out there and it is so frustrating for the average YouTube creator. And it's caused so many problems for people going, oh, that's it. I'm going to leave YouTube now. I can't afford to have this $42,000 fine. Why do we let Google get away with it time after time after time? Hopefully the lawyers can get together, speak to the FTC and get Google to change their mind. But this was the easiest way and the cheapest way for Google to say, no, it's down to the creator. We can't have anything to do with it. But all they had to do was adopt another method. Um, and I just find it really frustrating that it's taken a week of headache and heartache and 50 video that I watched and pages and pages and pages of regulations for this one lawyer to get a phone call and then be told, this is what Google have done deliberately. Um, it's just ridiculous. So the good news out of this story is that the more Google mess up and YouTube mess up, the more likely that a second player will come in to challenge that monopoly. But in the can meantime, give, people like you and me suffer. Can I give you a slightly different take on it? Yes, please. Consider that what the advertiser wants to get out of advertising right they want people to go and buy their products or services and so from google's perspective in order to deliver on the expectations of that particular form of their client and that particular revenue generation stream 
then they have to pair the advertiser with somebody who's going to buy or sell their products. And so mm -hmm. if a law comes into an existence that basically says, we don't want you marketing this, that, or the other to children, then it starts to limit the amount of advertisements that can be displayed to children, thereby limiting Google's ability to inject an ad or to introduce an ad into a younger audience. And so does it suck as a content creator? Yes, but I, I, would, I would suggest to you that it's not so much Google doesn't want to pay peep content provider, providers for their money. Of course, I think that's probably true, but I, I, I would guess that the motivating factor there isn't so much that because for every time, for every money that they pay the content producer, you can bet that they're probably making, it's probably like an 80-20 split. Uh, so they're making a lot of money. It's like selling Girl, Girl Scout cookies. I don't think they. I don't think. I think it probably they're taking in less money overall. I, I think that it's just a. It's the function of if you can't sell to children, then you can't make any money off of selling to children. And so if people are going to make videos uh, for children, then they're going to have to do it out of the goodness of their heart because children don't have any money. They don't have any purchasing power. They don't have any decision power. And so the government is trying to change the way that we encourage children to either spend money or talk to their parents about spending money is that it, it, it does that is is there any validity to that or am i totally off base there no it's it, for me that's a perfectly valid uh route that you could take my biggest complaint is why didn't youtube offer the creator the three options that the ftc because everybody has painted the ftc as the bad guy here that's why. And I don't think it is. Yeah. I think it's Google. That's why. Because it allows them to attack the government because the government's a big player and you know it's it's easy to vilify a government. So that's our government agency. Well, yeah. Also the I mean, the COPPA uh the COPPA Act has it was not even created by the FTC. It's 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 a law that was passed by Congress and they are the enforcers of that law. So 20 years ago as well. Yeah, it was it was 1998 when they passed the law and it was updated in 2013. So the, the mm -hmm. issue is it's not that they don't want to give money. The the fact is, is like YouTube wants to take it as like take as much advantage as they possibly can. So the law the, the COPPA law was actually changed to address these sorts of things online in 2013. And YouTube pretended that they're not involved whatsoever. And they pretended by this by saying that, hey, we don't we don't allow children on our, our website. You have to be 13 years or older. That's why if you go to any website that says, hey, you're signing up, are you a 13 years or older? Is because if you are not, and you say that you are not, the COPPA uh, is allowed, and the COPPA goes into effect. Mm. So if you... If a, if a child says that they are 13 or older, they are trying, they're basically giving an out to the website. However, YouTube was really adamant about how they were not for children, even though it was obvious that they had millions of things of content, millions of minutes of content for children, specifically for children for years. And there was even a case where uh, YouTube made a advertising thing to go to different companies like Hasbro and others, other companies and said, hey, this is how many children watch this content. We're the number one children. It's like, like, you are now telling people that you are acknowledging what you are. And that's what really started this whole process because that came out. And then these advocacy groups were trying, were, went, actually, they went to the DOJ to get them to do mm -hmm. something against YouTube. And they didn't do anything. So it went back, it went to the FTC. And then the FTC was like, they just they created a civil lawsuit towards YouTube saying that you are violating the COPPA, uh, the the act, 
which is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. It is not about an advertising to children issue. It's about taking information from children exactly and that's using the, that information. So that's the, that's the taking whole the data yet again yes. of this whole thing is that you know when you go Noah, you were talking about advertising making money. I think YouTube's not actually doesn't make money at all for Google. In fact, I think it still loses money for them as a whole. Now, whether this is just when they say it loses money, some type of tax scheme or something else, I don't Probably. know. Because I, I, I mean, really Amazon also says they don't make much money doubt, from their yeah, stuff. <laughs> that like... They don't make money on this. But in any case, you know, services like DuckDuckGo or your TV, when you're watching an ad, you know, they don't know who is sitting there in that room watching the ad. So they create a general ad to target the audience of those who are going to watch it to say, well, I know by running this ad during the Super Bowl, maybe I don't want 55-year-olds to see the ad. Maybe I'm targeting it to 16 to 18-year-olds, but I know 55-year-olds are going to have to watch it because there's nothing I can do about that. In YouTube's instance, they were taking data from kids and, and other services were doing this as well. Google browsing, everything else, taking all this data from kids. And then they were using that to specifically throw ads their way. I don't see how Google could still not make money by allowing ads to run on there unless they plan on running adult-only ads on YouTube, which I've never seen. Uh, so why couldn't you just allow regular ads to go through without collecting people's data? I know this is crazy. I know that the marketers out there are just like, their heads are exploding. But imagine if you didn't have the ability to steal people's privacy information and use it against them, if you just hoped your ad would run across the people that you wanted and you know your product sells itself well here's so the- i've got a, i've got a question here for you sorry on on the data collection side of it yeah mm-hmm. here i am as a dad and i've sat down with my um android pad and i've logged on to youtube and we're sitting there watching another dad with his kid playing a child's game whose data are google collecting who did that five-year-old sign on to that iPad with his Google account and his information? No, it's the parents. So how do they know they're collecting children's data? Because they're collecting they children's have- data because parents do also give people give their kids devices that are specifically for those kids to use. The, 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 the Yes, the parent signed up for the account, but the kid is the one using it, and the kid is the well, only it's one still using more it devious in many cases. Than that. They grab so much information, Zeb, on you that because you sign up for services or accounts, other places, and maybe there's some, I don't know, uh, random survey or something that comes out from another company that you're interested in doing business with that says, how many kids are in your house? Oh, two. Uh, What ages are they? Oh, five and six. And then Google grabs that information and then they fingerprint your browsing activities so they know when it's probably you watching stuff and probably the five-year-old in your house watching stuff. And then it even goes further than that because then they know uh, based on your purchases that go into your different email accounts and things when you're most likely to buy a toy for your kid and when you're not. And it just keeps going on and on and on to the point where they're not guessing there's a five-year-old in there they know there's a five-year-old sitting in your house. They know what that five-year-old likes. They know what they watch. They know what they browse. They know what their emails are. They know when they get toys. They know when their birthday is. They know everything about them, probably more than their parents. And that's the problem where this law was trying to address. And Mm -hmm. YouTube basically did the typical nuclear option of 
you know, we're just going to wipe out revenue for anybody who does kid content out there. And there's a lot of people made their living this way. But why I bring this up is we get a lot of people. And the reason why I wanted to put this article in here as well is we get a lot of people telling us, go to a different one of these other alternative video sites. You know, why aren't you guys on whatever random one pops up today? There's like 500 of them. And the answer is we are. Nobody watches the content there. We're on several. I have on, on my channel, YouTube channel specifically, I've at least used half a dozen of these alternatives that everybody swears by. Yeah. Nobody is there to watch the stuff. And so, you know, I hope that honestly, YouTube continues to do this stuff because the only way to get people to go to those places is that YouTube basically has nothing left in it but business corporate videos that nobody mm-hmm. wants to watch. And people start looking for the good old days of the internet and YouTube and look for an alternative service. But there mm-hmm. is, there are literally no good options out there. I, if people will just, they'll talk them up like, oh my gosh, you've got to try BitChute. But there are just so many problems with these platforms. They, I'll put their video embedding links in and the videos won't play. They'll stutter. They don't work. The quality's terrible. It, it's just none of it is scalable yet. So mm-hmm. that's why we don't. We we're on them. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, uh, Bitchute is probably the, the one of the one of the better ones, but it's not. You know, there's there's yeah. issues, but we actually do have DL on Bitchute if anybody wants to use that. Uh, but currently, there's like a couple dozen people that use it, so that's why it's not a focus. Uh, but also, mm-hmm. that's just the case of like most of these platforms. There's not a lot of audience on these platforms because, like, you know, a lot of people like love the idea of decentralized platforms, and yes, that's good. But in some cases it's not a very good viable option because you know there's peertube people are like you should use peertube but peertube's not a service peertube is a, is a software that you can run yourself but you have to market everything in that case still so yes there's like 3 300 or so depending depending on like different languages and all kinds of stuff of different peertube instances but they're all ridiculously small amount of quota that you have to use the files so you have maybe five videos that you could put on it and you could have maybe access to uh, a couple dozen people in that particular instance. It's just not a viable option because decentralized in getting a, any kind of social network is a very, very difficult thing to do. It just requires mm-hmm. a massive amount of networking that would require a massive company yeah. behind it to pull off unless somehow you can get this blockchain option to actually work effectively, yeah. which up to this point, any of the services that are using blockchain only half work or work half the time. And so it's just not effective. There was one big blockchain one. I don't remember. It was one of the dozen. And that was one of the ones where, well, if enough people aren't seeding the video, when you first upload it, nobody gets to watch it. They'll just delete it. Yeah. Just delete it. So, I mean, it's, it's, there's just too many problems compared with it, but I I just hope YouTube keeps messing up. Every time I see one of these things come out, I'm like, yes, keep messing up. So that there can be an alternative. What's the next thing that's going to happen, though? Let's say we get 2 billion creators who suddenly decide, you know what, I've had enough with YouTube. I'm going to Twitch. Won't the FTC then tackle TwitchNet? Or can you not yes. make money on Twitch? Absolutely. No, no it's, 100, it's 100%. It's because of their size, right? Everybody, and it's... It's just like the BSD versus Linux conversation that we have, right? If you ever talk to the BSD guys, they'll say, oh, our community is so much less hostile and so much, there's so much less drama. Yeah, because it's like 
you know, one one thousandth of the size of the Linux community. We got a lot more people, so obviously have a lot more resistance. Same thing holds true with content distribution networks. YouTube has all of the problems that they have because all the eyes are on YouTube. All the money is on YouTube. All the regulation is on YouTube. The second all of that stuff moves on to another centralized platform, we're going to have the exact same problem. And the problem is Ryan so eloquently pointed out with decentralized platforms are normal everyday people want one place to go to. You go to YouTube, not Google's instance of YouTube or John's instance of YouTube or the Destination Linux instant, uh, instance of YouTube, just YouTube, right? And until we get that down, we are trying to implement decentralization without considering the uh, 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 function, functionality and ease of use. And that's right. never going to get us anywhere. Exactly. Well, the okay. The, the main so, thing is that the COPPA law is applying to everyone, to every system. It's not just a focus on YouTube. It's just that YouTube violated okay. it for so long that they are a huge focus from FTC. That's why they had a lawsuit in 2018. That's why YouTube settled for $170 million in, in September of this year. That's why they have to change all these things because in order for the settlement, they had to settle with FTC and also do certain stipulations that the FTC required them to do. The thing is, they should have done this years ago, but they didn't because they wanted to make as much money as possible while knowing that they're violating the law. And that is the mm -hmm. biggest issue because they were fully aware in 2013 that there was tons of kids content. There were there were gigantic channels that were specifically just for making kid content. And now that's an ambiguous situation where the FTC wants to expand the COPPA uh, like language to be more like wide reaching and more broad. And that's what mm -hmm. that's the problematic thing. So there's certain pieces where the FTC is doing something that's potentially bad because they're instead of doing child directed they're now doing a thing called child attracted content whereas if you have something that is somewhat interesting to a child then you have a problem and that is the mm. biggest issue because of that creates a problem where family friendly content is problematic and that is crazy because it, our content is not for kids kids but there's kids could watch it with their family you know they could be around in right. the conversation they could build their brains and learn <laughs> I, about linux exactly and so I even disagree. us, we, we could have an issue with it. I agree with your take. I agree with your synopsis in the traditional business sense, but that's why I think decentralization is so important and why, Ryan, you see people that go, oh, you have to check out X. Because with decentralization, like you can say all day long, hey, here's the thing that we have to have. Here are the rules and it applies to everybody and nobody's exempt. But honestly, when push comes to shove where the rubber meets the road, how do you enforce uh, you know, content guidelines, you know, over uh, over um, PeerTube, for example, right? Like, which PeerTube instance are you going to go after? The largest one? Some of them. You would if contact PeerTube themselves and make them put it in the software. Well, but I'm just saying, so it's open source. So then somebody forks it and takes it back out. I mean, there's, you can't, you can't True. force, you, you, you can only... You can only force the behavior. You can't actually force the code change in that in a, in a decentralized instance, right? So you can go after the large players that ha that are running the software and have them uh, force them to implement that feature, and that might be moderately successful. But you'll never actually. It's like trying to put regulations on torrenting, right? Like, how are you going to do that? You can go ahead and like you can say you're going to do it. You can make it illegal. You can write a law on the books. But there's no real way to enforce it, and I think. What's interesting about that and what is so liberating about that is even if it has somewhat of a downside, because I have kids and I want them to stay safe online, even if there is a downside associated with that liberty, associated with that freedom, it is so refreshing 
that we are starting to enter a world in which people are starting to take control back of their technology and we can put all the laws we want on the books and they're essentially unenforceable. And so what we have to do is then go to the community and say, okay, how can we fix this problem in a in a community fashion rather than a top down, the government decided now everybody has to do it approach. And I think overall that would be more successful. I just, I don't know that, I don't know without ease of use that we ever get there. Well, if the problem is, and you nailed it, Noah, is they create a product that they decentralize something, but then it's inferior. It's mm-hmm. never better. Right. Not, not never, but in this case, very rarely alternatives, it's not Torrents better. Are better. And Torrents so are better than yeah, HTTP downloads. Yeah. But the, my point with YouTube specifically is these alternatives are not better. And no, they suck. In, in one of the biggest problems is one you mentioned, which is, there's no catalog that brings it all together. People want to go to YouTube and just search around and get lost in videos. They That's don't, right. like you said, want to go to Dan or Bob or Joe's different. And keep track of Dan and Bob stuff. and Joe and where I yeah. saw this and where I saw that. Exactly. Right. You just want one place. And if they can fix that, and it wasn't this an issue with flat packs, uh, taking it to a different step, Michael, where, you know, initially they were kind of spread out everywhere because it was decentralized, but no, then they brought flat hub in, it's... which brought it all kind of together where, Yes, it's still broken up, but you have one place to search. Well, I mean, okay, the flat packs at- are different because the flat pack, the flat hub itself is not a part of flat pack, and that's still a problem, but it has become like the community de facto centralized repo for it. Because everybody's like, hey, you know what would be really good about with flat packs? Having a repo that's centralized that everybody could go to to find the things because that's how getting software works because that's we already have the system of repos. For individual distros, you know you have one repo to get to. Now you have this new system that you could have thousands. You have no idea where everything is. So having a flat flat hub is a very fundamental thing, but it isn't technically a part of the Flatpak project. So at some point that could go away. We don't know. Decentralized and centralized both have massive pros and cons. There is neither one of them are the best option. So that's the biggest problem. Okay, so consider this for a moment. Look at Signal. Signal is one of those applications that it may not technically be decentralized. In fact, when I say technically, I mean it's literally not decentralized. But Signal does a thing that the way that they handle encryption and the exchange of keys means that they don't ever compromise on actual security. And yet, as far as the user is concerned, it's literally no different than any other messaging platform, than iOS, you know, whatever the i text or whatever it's called, and uh, and Telegram and, and those kinds of things. What that means is that with just a little bit of thought and a little bit of sweat equity, we can we could create a system. Technology yes. exists to create a decentralized system. So for example, you could have uh, a, you know, a federated, and we're working on that, right, with the, with various different social protocols, but you we could hone those protocols in such a way that it becomes part of a central decentralized network. And so if you search for a particular movie, it doesn't matter which instance it's on, exactly. it, it, it already finds it. And the, we just have to hone that. The basics are already there. We've already kind of started that. We just haven't we just haven't dialed it into the point that it's super easy and that anybody can just one click deploy and now they have an instance, right? And what's so interesting is it seems like Noah, they've created all of the hard parts of creating a YouTube alternative, but don't finish what yes. I think would be the easier part, which is okay, create a search function where it just searches it talks together. Yeah. Exactly. All and, the hard work, but not the last part. And the other thing is, too, is one thing I also think would be extraordinarily helpful that I've seen very, very uh, implemented very, very successfully numerous times is a, a, a dual model. Bitwarden is the first thing that comes to example or comes to mind. If you want, if you 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 say to yourself, I want I want to own my own passwords. I have all of these things. I've got everything set up. Okay, I want to do this. Okay. All right. 
how do I get started? Well, I don't want to spin up a Bitwarden server because I don't have time to do that, right? Well, guess what? You can just go to bitwarden.com, sign up for an account, and you can use it. And then after three months, five months, six months, after you realize it's for you, then you can go ahead and spin up your own instance. And now it's yeah. still, you know, it's still working or whatever. Now get this. My wife comes out and says she wants to do it. I put her on my instance. But then Joe down the street, I'm not putting Joe on my instance, but I can tell Joe just go over to Bitwarden and sign back up, right? Bitwarden then becomes a drop-in replacement literally for KeePass, and yet it doesn't compromise on the it's not it's not something it's not uh, as a service you can still own it yourself and so if 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 yeah, i'm just going to pick on peertube for example if peertube got to a point where i could go to peertube.com and all of the videos on the peertube that were listed as maybe federated uh, i could just go to peertube.com and search for video and it would show up and all those things and all those things worked and then if i could set up an instance and i just say public to peertube uh, public to federated and then anybody's instance uh, you know, collects. Now we have a workable model because now we can just tell people go to peertube.com. That would be a, a way. And as you said, technically speaking, that's not the difficult part. Yep. Mm -hmm. So one final question, bringing it back to YouTube with all this hoo-ha that's going on and with the word finally getting out that this is just a draconian way that YouTube are going to be applying the law. Will they change their mind? Will they go no. back to having a better option of is it for kids is it for general or is it for adults unlikely It'll because it, it, they're not doing it because it's to help the creator they're doing it to cover their, their their selves because they are the ones being sued so if they can pass the responsibility off to the to the creators that allows them to come pull, pull away from it completely and that's why they, everybody's freaking out of the forty-two thousand uh, dollars fine because it's going towards creators because YouTube pushed it away from themselves. And by mm -hmm. doing the by making it a simple one, yes or no, are you for kids or are you not for kids? Making it a yes or no puts an ambiguous situation where it creates it makes a ton of confusion and takes them like takes them out of the position. And that is the the that's the worst part about what youtube is doing is that they are just being ambiguous for the like for this fact and also if you do choose to say that you are for kids then you have a situation where you have so many features removed from your account like mm. you can't you yeah. can't have notifications you can't get subscriptions you don't have comments anymore you have so many the things stripped out just so like Almost no one is going to select it because of how drastic it is if they can avoid it. Now, there are certain cases where some people are creating content for both, you know, a, a full general audience, but sometimes these videos are specifically for kids. They can go in and choose if this is a for kids video for that particular one, but there's no there's no incentive for them to do it because essentially like 60 to 70% of the ad revenue is removed because the ad revenue is mostly through the personalized 90%. ads. They're saying that you know if you remove that you have a you still can get ads but it's more general ads and those don't get as much uh, percentage the click through rate is not as good so that they want that's why that they have this situation so like the the adpocalypse is a whole different thing that wasn't really YouTube's fault this is kind of YouTube's fault because they refused to acknowledge the law in 2013 they spent years pretending that they weren't uh, what they are and now that they finally are doing it the only reason they ever decided to admit it was so they could get more money and then that backfired and made the, the FTC sue them so like it's it, this in this particular instance it's YouTube's fault mm -hmm. there was also some lawyers there was a lawyer who went and talked to the FTC because of this situation and he found out that they weren't even aware that the content creators would be affected by this whatsoever 
So like it creates this weird situation where the FTC does yeah. need people to send messages and let them know about what uh, you you need to you know research the topic to let them know that you know you're informed and everything. But you need to send them a message to FTC to make sure that they're uh, not expanding the thing, just enforcing it properly, and also hopefully there's a way to contact YouTube and tell them to stop being awful because there's a general audience exemption in the COPPA uh, Act that YouTube is ignoring, and that's the biggest mm -hmm. issue. So if we were able Absolutely. to somehow get YouTube to add the general audience, it would be fine. So, Ryan, help us out here. Dig us out of this big hole. Tell us some great news. So Linux kernel 5.4 is being released today. As we're recording this, we have, and we talked in episode 142 about some of this. So, but as we're recording this, it's out there right now. Qualcomm Snapdragon 855 support, new AMD and Intel GPU supported, Intel Ice Lake Thunderbolt support, drones we talked about being in 5.4, XFAT support, of course, coming in for those who want it. Uh, improvements in Wine and, and Proton are, are there as well as in addition to FSCrypt improvements. So a lot came in 5.4, but that's already dropped. So now it's time to look at what's coming in the new version, 5, which will be released, the first kernel version in 2020. And looking at what is already going into 5.5, I am really excited about this kernel version. So live patching will now track system states, which means it will have a huge improvement in how patching is handled uh, starting in kernel 5.5. Um, system 76 has dropped some ACPI driver code in there for their upcoming core boot, which we talked about enabled laptops that are dropping. Um, they also, by the way, System76 announced they're going to be making their own laptops next year. So that's some exciting news to kind of go along with that core boot stuff. You have Intel Optane DC persistent memory is getting support. Lots of graphic card improvements in there for Intel and for AMD. And AMD is dropping in overdrive overclocking support for their Navi uh, lineup. So if you're into overclocking and things, you're going to love kernel 5.5 and you're on AMD. Improved power management for NVIDIA and Intel hybrid laptops. So this is a big complaint for a lot of people who have hybrid laptops is the power management is terrible, and that will be fixed there. Uh, EXT4 encryption improvements, Intel CPU power management, new hardware dropped in there. This is something we've been talking about this show all year. It's a common theme. These new kernels, not only for all the older hardware that's already out there getting a bunch of improvements, but all the new hardware enablement that comes in these later kernels, including Logitech keyboards, which you might get something like that for Christmas. Um, uh, or in, in be in the market for a new lap uh, keyboard and want to have that support built in where you're trying not trying to uh, you know do some incantations in the terminal to get things to work. It's all going to be built into the kernel. Wi-Fi drivers, uh, additional new Wi-Fi drivers are being added to uh, this kernel and Huawei laptop support. Uh, so whether you're on old hardware, new hardware, it doesn't matter. Kernel 5.5 is looking awesome. But I think the big thing here to highlight is that Linux is becoming more plug and play than ever before because of the fact that so many hardware manufacturers are throwing their support into the Linux kernel and putting their um, drivers directly into it. And that to me is just so exciting to see. I mean, absolutely. I can't. I can't wait to get this new the new hardware stuff support because it's going to be a lot more people 
uh, interested in, in using Linux because they can actually use it on certain, you know, hardware that they have, especially the different features of like, you know, getting the new AMD support, new uh, Optane support from Intel. Like there's so many things that when you, every time, basically every time a new version of Linux kernel comes out, there's always something that is just, you know, something that you don't necessarily are wanting specifically, but you see like, there's so much value and benefit that they're taking into consideration. So like it's, it's always awesome to see when every time they, they come in, cause it, no matter what, even if you bring out the latest version of 5.4 and then you, you look at the, what's coming in 5.5, you're like, yes, like every, every, even if it's not even out yet, you see like the next version is like, okay, that's awesome. And the next version, that's awesome. It's like, you know, it's, it's a weird thing that like, it's kind of like, it's a weird way to describe it. I guess it's like a kid in a candy store. So like Linux is like the software version of candy yeah i mean it used to not be honestly that exciting when a new linux kernel came out there'd be some kind of big technical jargon thing of reconfiguring <laughs> something and you're just like okay cool i mean I, i'm glad they're working on it but now with all of the hardware being dumped into it every single release yeah to me i don't know if i've just gotten geekier or not probably both but it just seems way more exciting to look at what's going on in the kernel than ever before yep so up first in the gaming section is some really interesting news, and it's re related to Valve's Half-Life series, and that there's a new Half-Life game coming. It's not technically Half-Life 3, though, because Valve still can't count to three. Wait uh, a minute, Michael. Stop, mm -hmm. stop, stop. You, This is the opportunity that gamers have been waiting on, and you can't just do this. For like 15 years, you have to say Half-Life 3 confirmed. You have to. Right, but we're, I mean, that's but we're talking about a new version of Half-Life that isn't actually Half-Life 3, so I have to specify oh, darn it. Uh, because they still can't count to three, and that's the issue, really. <laughs> uh, but Valve's new game is actually called Alex. I, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the a third game from the series of Half-Life, but not it's in between one and two, technically speaking. So, like the chronologically, it's in between one and two. This was smart on their part not to release Half Life Three because yes. no matter what, people would have hated on it. There's way it too much expectation for 15 years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's like it's a it's also a VR game. So it's specifically for VR only. So if you if you have any VR headsets like the Index or whatever, uh, you can play this game when it comes out next year. Uh, but this is it looks like a, a really interesting approach that they're doing, like taking an existing franchise and putting into it a VR uh, style game. I think that's pretty interesting to see what happens with that. Uh, but there is a little bit of an issue in that it is not confirmed for Linux users yet. Uh, they said that they are working on support for Linux users, but it's not confirmed to have it yet. So that's why it doesn't list it in the announcement. Uh, they are, it is still, it is being in, being developed for Linux, but we don't know if it's going to have day one yet because they, they might get it done by the time they actually do the release, but it might not, it might be later on. So we don't know. Uh, but it is, it is pretty cool overall. And I am glad that Have you seen the graphics of this thing? Well, I mean, it, I've seen the, I've seen the demo. Just, it's ridiculous. It, it, I've never, Noah, you have been talking about VR, your interest in VR, getting a VR headset yes. and all of that. Yep. I have looked at all of these VR games, you know, really anticipating this thing to take off. Now, we had a discussion a while back where I was saying, you know, I'm a much I'm a bigger believer that AR is going to be the thing that breaks out, not VR, um, because VR just seems like it never really went anywhere. And a lot of that happens to be because when I watch these VR games, they're cool, they're awesome, but they're usually really short games, 
and the graphics are just they're not impressive and you know they're just weak this is the first game that i've seen in the vr world that i've personally seen that just blew me away like this is next gen you look like you are in half-life you're doing mm-hmm. things like with the guns and loading and things that just make you feel like you're really in that world and this blew me away and i think with your new ryzen build that you finally got going there this might be the one for you to uh pick up here and try out especially if we want to see what the capabilities fully are of vr but you've you've got to take a look at some of these videos noah because i know you're excited about vr i'm excited about vr the other thing is i'm excited that anytime i can support efforts on linux even if i'm not a gamer people always assume that i don't care about gaming stuff on linux because i'm not a uh, it's it's not my chosen form of entertainment that's not true right i like supporting a continuation of development on linux because i understand that that means that there's going to be more eyes on linux and more people using it and so anytime there's advancement that to me in and of itself the principle is important to me and also, I, at some point, I really would like to start getting into the Destination Linux gaming network. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the question then, is this going to be the game that makes VR? Or will it just be one notch on the ladder? Let me put it this way. It, when I say that this game has been anticipated in the gaming community for 15 years, I can't think of another game more anticipated ever because of the fact that it was such a hit and it just made sense. Certainly, you know, Valve is going to come out with Half-Life 3 or a continuation or something along the series, and they haven't. And I think it got to a point where it became a meme and there was just so much annoyance to Gabe probably about Half-Life 3 coming. And then he knew at this point uh, that the expectations for it would be so high, it would be impossible to ever deliver a product that would meet what Half-Life 3 is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so I... I think this was an interesting move on Valve's part because you take the most anticipated game probably ever, or at least, you know, memed ever to be anticipated. And one of the greatest game series of all time from a first person shooter standpoint, and you basically make it a VR exclusive. So if there is anything that was going to push people to VR, it would be this, but keep in mind, uh, it's going to cost you a thousand dollars worth of equipment Mm -hmm. to play one game. So you know, now the, the new kits do come with this game. So I noticed that on Steam site, uh, that if you pick up one of their $1,000, $999 VR kits, that it comes with Alex. Um, so that's kind of cool. At the same time, is this going to be the thing that pushes them over the edge? I have a hard time believing there's that many people out there that are going to drop a grand on a VR headset on a Dell, yeah. for this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't do it for that purpose just because I'm super cheap. But uh, if I would be really tempted if the next version of portal was also a VR game, because yeah. that would be awesome because they, they have portal one and two, but they don't have portal three yet. Valve can't count to three, you know, cause they have, <laughs> they have portal two left for dead Two. still don't have three of that. Like I, I think every game they make, they stop it too. Yeah. I think that the, this game has potential. I think this is probably the best one they could have chosen to get people to, to consider going into uh, you know, using it because of how much it's been memed and how how much people want to get play this game. However, I'm not one of those people because I've actually never played any of Half Life games. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. kick them off the podcast. So, so so maybe I could do like a game stream and people could like you know laugh at how terrible I am at a game. Well, we're hiring years for old. a fourth host now <laughs> uh, that Michael has admitted that publicly. So if anyone's interested, send your applications to well, comments I mean, at 
Operation Linux. Wouldn't it be really cool to see a first reaction to a playing Half-Life? I think that's been an option. There you go. See? Well, we need to do that. And probably Noah hasn't played it either, I'm guessing. So we need oh. to have both of you do a intro. I know this will come as a shock to you, but no. <laughs> I think game. I've got about eight minutes with it. So there's three of us. You're on your own next week, Ryan. I'm so disappointed. Okay, so as he, Ryan was saying, he's looking for three new co-hosts <laughs> on Destination Linux. <laughs> the Google Stadia has officially launched, and everybody is not really that excited. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. It's a typical Google release with the UI that's missing a lot of core functions, uh, some of the things that they advertised, and a strange reliance on a mobile app to do things like purchasing games. So the console quality claim is getting eaten alive with noticeable lag and stuttering along with people stating that it looks uh, more like 720 than a full HD, and that's because Google auto-adjusts, so you never really know what version uh, of the game that you're actually launching. And since uh, lag was everyone's fear, it's worth noting that even those with fiber optic connections to their home and gigabit speeds are getting two are, are getting eighty percent, uh, two hundred two hundred and eighty percent response time lag between comparable in-home machines to the Stadia server, even with the same settings as Stadia. And so, if, if this wasn't enough, you'll get a dismal amount of titles that you'll need to pay sixty dollars for, as well as your hundred and thirty dollar purchase of, and then the nine ninety nine a month. Profi to enjoy, uh, Ryan. I just have to ask: Is this uh, is this an abysmal failure for Google? I mean, it certainly launched that way, and I have to tell people, especially the ones that sent us the angry other emails. Otherwise, we told you so. We <laughs> told you so. You said we were wrong. We, you know, you said, "Oh, we're just hating on Google." No, I think it really wasn't just about the fact that it's Google, although certainly uh, with their privacy practices and things, it, they're an easy target to pick on. I, all of us ask the same question. It's the same question everyone in the technical industry was thinking the moment this thing was launched. How are you going to deal with lag? People do not have inter internet connections on a large scale that are reliable enough, and those that do generally have data caps, and it's just the market is so small. How are you going to overcome that? And the answer is they didn't. Um, yeah. There are reports of overheating. There are hardware issues. Google's denying this. Uh, Gamers Nexus, for instance, had to sit on hold for three hours just to get one question answered, just to show you. Uh, we know how bad Google's customer support is. I mean, this is no surprise, but imagine mm -hmm. having this brand new game um, system and you can't get anybody on the phone uh, when you're having... And didn't I also read that people were getting these game boxes but not having the initiation code to get it all set up? That's correct, yes. A lot of people couldn't even get their system started, so they were expected to sit on that hold. And, and by the way, this is just those waiting on, uh, for, on hold for three hours. This isn't massively out. These are the, the people who signed up for the creator's yeah. kit only calling in. Imagine when this thing has, if this thing had taken off like they expected and there were millions of people out there Google didn't scale anything from a support standpoint to handle this. In addition, all of this lag, 280% response time lag, it, it is big. Uh, there are games, obviously, that lag is not as critical, so you might be able to get away with it. We all knew this was going to be a thing, but you're having this lag with the limited amount of people that are on it now. When this is mass-produced, and let's say you had millions of people sitting on those servers, it's only going to get worse, not better. So if you, you can can't actually shoot it Michael, now, go and make a cup of tea and see whether or not you shot me back. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, some like. people are saying, and I haven't been able to confirm this, that Google somewhere put that they are actually trying to adjust. So if you have really good lag and Zeb, I have terrible, you have really good lag and I have terrible lag, then they're basically adjusting the game so that it, 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 both got bad. so that it kind of brings them together, the lag together. So th- this is slowing some people down just so that they can play with you to begin with. Now, I haven't confirmed that. I've just seen people talking about that, but it makes logical sense they would try to do something along those lines. One writer said, they nailed the impossible and failed the possible. Google has delivered high-quality game streaming with minimal problems, but in almost every other respect, the, con- the company's approach is baffling. For instance, your pro plan for $9.99 a month includes only two games. Two games. That's it. Destiny 2 and some showdown type thing. So you're paying $9 a month for a whole two games. Um, Now, there are other people who are in Microsoft's competition for this Google Stadia, which is called xCloud right now. It is in beta. They have over 50 titles already in beta, and they are saying that it is a far, far superior product to what Google has released here. But, you know, I, this is what we said it was going to be. It, it looks like it's going to be a failure, and Google will probably drop this thing the second you know, they catch on to the fact that nobody no. wants this, and they'll kill it like they kill everything else. Google doesn't do that. I'm going so, to start buying shares in the Google Graveyard website. <laughs> <laughs> so the software spotlight this week is something that we've, you know, it's been around for a very long time, is pretty much a fundamental piece of software that we, you know, not really talked about that much. And that's kind of we wanted to give it a little bit of a spotlight because it has been like very important thing. And it's kind of funny that, you know, it doesn't get that much attention. And that is the Synaptic Package Manager. So you. Yeah, so Synaptic Package Manager is a piece of software that allows you to install packages from your your just your distro repository in a really easy way. And it was created by the Debian project, uh, and this is a a piece of software that is pretty much fundamental for you know decades now. Um, maybe not fully decades, but long time. And it's 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 one of those things that is makes it a lot easier to get various different packages, whether you want to get developer packages, where you want to get source file or source packages, where you want to get uh, 32-bit or 64-bit. It makes it a lot easier rather than having to go into your command line and actually running it. Uh, it's essentially like the package manager before app stores existed. And uh, so it's more of like a legacy thing. And it does kind of look like a legacy thing, but it is very valuable in the same thing as well. And if you have... Uh, you know, a new Pinebook Pro like uh, Ryan did, it actually comes pre-installed by default. So you can help, you can, it'll help you install uh, software that way because Pinebook Pro comes with Debian as their base distro. And there's also other tools that are similar. Like you could, if you, this is a GTK based application, but if you want a, a Qt based application, Muon Package Manager is the same kind of thing for Qt based users. So mm-hmm. they're both very fundamental pieces of software. If you like the style of installing packages from the command line, but you want to have a way that to search the packages repository, you can use these software tools to do that. Yep. Our tips and trick this week is uh, something that's a little bit out of the norm. You may wonder why I'm holding a, a handful of dice and a stack of 
hard copy. You're about to play but, Dungeons and Dragons. No, I'm not. Oh. I'm about to generate the world's most secure password. Computers have gotten really good at figuring out how humans create passwords. And worse yet, humans are terrible at what we call entropy. Entropy mm. being essentially randomness. And so there's a number of different ways that people have come up to try to introduce entropy. The problem is when you generate a 64 entry, true random password, it's great. It's completely secure and also completely and entirely impossible to remember. So that's where a, a, a concept of dice words comes in. Now, dice words works like this. You can do it with a single die or you can use five if you want to do it a little bit faster. And you sit there and you roll the five dice. And so you'd get a, a series of numbers. So the number I got was one, one, six, five and three. So if I take the number 11653 and I go over to my dice words list, which you can download off the internet, 11653 is alone, the word alone. And so you'll do that same process seven to nine times and you'll come up with nine uh, easily rememberable phrases or, uh, or uh, words, excuse me. And you put that that meaningless phrase together. And you will have a very, very secure password that's very, very easy to remember. And because it's all generated offline, there's no chance of any sort of electronic interception. And if you want to get really crazy and paranoid about it, use the on-screen keyboard so that no hardware keyloggers can log your keystrokes. And of course, if it's even more secure, use an on-screen keyboard and use it in an air cap computer so nothing can touch that machine. Now, did you watch the movie, Noah, Citizen 4? Yes. So there's a scene in there which uh, Edward Snowden basically takes this sheet and he puts it over his head to type yep. his password into the laptop. And right. this is somebody, obviously, whose whole life was based on security. And, yep. and, and, and so when people think, oh, you're being too paranoid to go out there and do some offline approach to generating a password, probably not paranoid enough, honestly. It, it depends. It, de it depends on what your threat model is. I get people all the time. Clients ask me anytime we do security consulting, clients ask, what is secure enough? Right. And that answer, that's like walking into a hardware store and looking around and the sales guy comes up and says, what can I help you with? And saying, I want a good tool. Okay. But do you want a hammer? Do you want a saw? Do you want to cut? Do you want to, do you want to, I mean, what do you want to do? So when, when we talk about security, there is no one size fits all approach. You have to look at what your threat model is. If you look, if you live in a, in a, in a rural house in 70 miles from the nearest civilization and your security apparatus is you're worried about the government, you have a very different security model and different security practices than you're going to have if you live in a 500 apartment complex in Houston and you're worried about your uh, dubious neighbors who like to break in and steal things in the other apartments throughout the complex and you're kind of worried that they're going to take your stuff, right? In one case, you would be putting a blanket over your head because you never know if there are cameras hidden in the wall, something like that. In our 500 apartment complex in, in, in Houston, essentially what you're doing is just making sure that it has a difficult enough password to guess that they're going to bang on it a couple of times and eventually hawk your stuff. Um, it depends on what your model is. It depends on what your threat model is. And so the, the nice thing about Diceware is if you use KeePass X, which you should be using if you are a uh, if, if you're an open source and, and, and Linux advocate, if you're using something like KeePass X, it actually has a Diceware generator built in that you can use passphrases. Um, so I, I would just encourage people to get into the standard practice of of using 
uh, diceware. The other thing I would encourage people to do, no matter what your threat model is, is develop routine good security models. And that would not include things like putting a sheet over your head, because the reality is you're not going to sit out at a coffee shop and put a sheet over your head. The reality is that there are cameras. Well, now I in feel the silly. Well, yeah. some people should. might I mean, not we all, do that. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> you guys are something else. Listen, Michael. The sheet isn't getting you anything, okay? Let me show you how my Linux distro can crack wide open your Windows box. It's not how dare you. you. Your time. <laughs> how dare you? But, but no, I mean, realistically, but simple things that you can do, right? If you touch type and you know where the keys are, don't sit there wide open, leaning back, uh, you know, at the, at the coffee shop typing. Close the lid a little bit. Give yourself some private, give your hands some privacy uh, as you're typing the password. Maybe lean over the, the keys a little bit so your body is, is immediately before it, so there's nothing behind you. There are small things you can do that don't look like, you know, you're not sitting there in the coffee shop, you know, like this, and and people are looking at you and going, "What is he doing?" I'm sorry, I just had to uh, authenticate my. If I see anybody code. doing that, I'll just know they run Linux. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, yeah. You just typed password as your password. I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the important and the, the thing is, and I actually mentioned this at the security presentation I gave. If you're looking for where your threat model is lacking, then just look at how you would compromise yourself. What things could you think of if you wanted to get to your own data? How would you go about breaking into your own system? And approach it from that perspective. And where you start to see problems, then patch them. Yep. Well, what's interesting is if you take this down to a smaller scale and for, for people who are not convinced about, you know, doing these extra steps for security. I don't know. How many times have you sat there and you, you're sitting behind somebody in line and they swipe their card, their ATM card, and the pad is either facing you or the clerk or it's one of those stretch ones and they just leave it on the table and they type in their pin. It's actually right. fun for me to sit there and look at what people's pins are because so many people sure. actually have more of a cultural fear of looking weird by hiding it than they do of somebody stealing their pin. Isn't that weird? Like they don't want to look like, oh, I don't care if anybody knows my pins one, 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 one. I'm just going to do it right here out in the open to everybody. Right. Um, you know, there, there needs to be. And, and then when you're the one who grabs the, the keypad and kind of like, you know, gets it out of everybody's angle, people look at you like, look at that freak trying to hide exactly. it. Exactly. You, you, know, you know, it's funny. I've never, I've never gotten I that look with uh, pin tap, but I'll tell you something. I have gotten some uh, negative reactions to. When I walk out to my car, one of the things that I do is I... I verify threats inside of I'm not getting into a moving vehicle without making sure there's nobody in it. And so one of the things I'll do as I'm as I'm back, probably, you know, 60, 70 feet, I'll just kind of look down and look under the car and just make sure there's nobody there. And then as I approach the car, I look through the back windows and I look through and then I just get in and go. And more than once somebody has I've been being I've been with somebody and they'll say, What are you looking for? Just checking underneath the car. Why? You afraid the boogeyman's under there? I'm like, No, afraid somebody who wants to rob me is under there. I don't know. I'm not really afraid. I just why would I not look like you said, is it why is it so weird just to like cover your hand when you enter the pin? Why is it weird to look to see if there's anybody under the car? Why is it weird to close the laptop lid so somebody doesn't see the password that you're using to secure your stuff? I don't get it. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. People need to actually challenge this stuff. And, it, and it's not only just security, but privacy as well. I've talked about how many times I go into a doctor's office. The one question they want you to fill out in the form is give your social security number. Mm -hmm. I've never done it. I've never been questioned about it. I've never been asked about it. I just leave it blank. Like sure. question just because somebody in a position of authority says they want right. something doesn't mean they get it. Every time I go to a cash thing and they're like, what's your phone number before we'll ring you out? No, 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 no. I'm not going to give you my phone number. This is how this is going to work. I'm going to give you money. 
you're going to give yeah. me the product and I'm going to walk right. out the store. Exactly. This is the end of our deal. Or I just, yeah. uh, you know, the other thing I'll do is I'll just make it up 701 775 1111. Is that your phone number? I don't know. I don't know whose phone number it is. It you, said, you said you asked for a phone number. I'm not giving you right. my phone number because I don't want to call from you and I don't want to call you. So I just made up a phone number. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? I went to a but, place that yeah. was like, I went to a place to get like my some work on, on my car and they were like, hey, what's your address? Like, no. Just, no, not doing that. <laughs> so a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we want to thank you for continuing to support us. Just this week, we're well over 1,100 Telegram users in our group, making it one of the largest Linux groups out there. We talk about the importance of networking, getting to know people, Telegram and things are a great way to do that. But also you can become a patron of the show and get to hang out with us after the show and get to hear all of the antics and fun things that go on along with all the perks and tears of being a patron. And we've also just joined Sponsus. So we're getting rid of Kofi because Noah could never uh, pronounce it I correctly. It right. So we just decided to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we've moved on to Sponsus. So if you're a Kofi member now, please switch over to Sponsus soon. Uh, we really like working with sponsors. They are very agreeable to changes and things that we want to make to make the platform easier and more usable. And additionally, uh, others want alternatives to Patreon. So that's our alternative that we're going to use. So if you're a patron, stay there. Uh, if you want something different, go check out sponsors with all of our perks there. But either way, whatever you're on, these services are darn near free. You get a fantastic behind the scenes look into the show and you get to support the content here on the Destination Linux Network. Speaking of support, like Spoonsys, become a part of the community <laughs> by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forum's <laughs> Mumble server. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of brain power there. And so if you can join us in that network, uh, we'd love you to do that. We there if you can't find a way to participate with us, then you're not trying hard enough. Because literally, if you can think of it, we have it. And that's all thanks to Michael. He doesn't do much else, but he does create wow. everything. <laughs> There you go. Not much else, but everything. <laughs> Absolutely. So please get back to us and provide some feedback or ask any questions that you have. There are numerous methods that you can do to, to, to achieve this. You can do an email at comments at destinationlinux.org, our Telegram group, our Discord, our Discourse, Twitter, Mastodon, and lots of other ways that Michael has given to you at destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. So please keep your comments coming and, and your questions. We'd love to read them. And as you heard from the three that we had today, we had, some, we had some good discussions regarding those. So finally, don't forget to join our Mumble server, chat with the community, set up gaming sessions yourself, and enjoy networking. If you want some more content from us, this, the fun doesn't stop here. We have our own channels you can check out. First, you can go to destinationlinux.network to get access to everything. But if you want to check out Ryan, you can go to youtube.com slash dosgeek, where you can, he'll fill your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb, where he does his uh, Zebedee Gaming YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Boss. You can find my Linux News podcast that is a weekly in-depth podcast called Linux uh, This Week in Linux. And you can find other Linux-related content at touchdigital.com. Or you can check out Noah's weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join him, and he'll answer your Linux and text questions on the AskNoahShow.com. And also be sure to uh, like that smash button and share the show on social media. 
So everybody have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye.